All right, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says recreation on it. We are in Genesis chapter 8 today. We're going to read it as we go through it. Um, so let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for giving us the scriptures, for making us your people. Thank you for this church family. And Lord, this morning, as we come to your word, we pray you would give us a greater understanding of who you are, what you do, what you're like, what difference you make in our life, what we can learn uh, from you this morning. Lord, help us to see you as a patient, loving, and merciful God who rescues us from sin, despair, and death. For this, we need your grace. We need your spirit, as always. Thank you for loving us. Give us the desire to walk with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. His name is Brian Haubert. On a typical day, he grabs some pamphlets and marches towards the flea market in Palmyra, New Jersey. Armed with a poster that trumpets Judgment Day as May 21st, 2011, which is this coming Saturday. He's bracing himself for rejection, and that, rejection because announcing God's wrath is not a popular message. Halbert, a 33-year-old actuary, says, I've been called a heretic. I've been told I read the wrong Bible. There's the occasional person who seems to be genuinely interested. He goes with his friend, Kevin Brown. And Kevin uses a gentler approach, not confronting people or uh, trying to engage them, just politely handing out Judgment Day pamphlets. Kevin owns his own nutrition and wellness business. Kind of ironic. <laughs> He's soft-spoken, not someone you'd imagine giving away doomsday tracts, but he says the clock is ticking. People need to know God commands us to share the gospel about the end of the world. He says if we don't share the gospel, their blood will be on our hands, whether they believe or not. God's moving me to do this. Now, Brian and Kevin are two of a small, or not so small, nobody knows, uh, group of Christians trying to sound this particular alarm, and they drive uh, caravans, put up billboards, hand out tracts, try to convince everybody that Judgment Day is upon us. They say this message is laced throughout the Bible, but only some can decode it. That's your first red flag, if all the other stuff wasn't. They say it's going to happen this way on May 21st, starting in the Pacific Rim at around 6 p.m. In each time zone, there'll be a great earthquake, such as never been in the history of the earth. The true Christians, he hopes he's one of them, will be raptured. They'll fly upward to heaven. For the rest, it's a horror of horror stories. And there's no more salvation. The Bible says it'll be 153 days later. The entire universe and planet Earth will be destroyed forever. Bible scholars note that even Jesus said he had no idea when Judgment Day would come. But believers like Brian and Kevin are unfazed. I've crunched the numbers. It's going to happen. Brian says the Bible contains coded proofs that reveal the timing. For example, he says from the time of Noah's flood to May 21st, 2011 is exactly 7,000 years. Revelations like this have changed his life. He's tried to warn his friends and family. They think he's crazy. That saddens him. No one knows how many people believe Judgment Day is right around the corner, but it appears that many became believers in 2009 after turning on 
a Christian network, Family Radio, Harold Camping, who's the network's 89-year-old founder, has been interpreting the Bible on the radio for years. He says everyone knows there'd be a judgment day at some point. We're just there, whether we like it or not. His predictions have inspired other groups to rally behind the May 21st date. People have quit their jobs and left their families to get the message out. Now, Harold Camping is not the first person to fix a date for the end of the world. There have been dozens of such prophets, and so far, they've all been wrong. For example, when I was in seminary, similar guy, Edgar Wisenant, published a booklet called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. But then he said he miscalculated. So the next year he published 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Would Be in 1989. Now, Camping himself has had to do some recalculation. He first predicted uh, the end would come on September 6, 1994. But now he explains he hadn't actually completed all of his biblical research. He said, at that time, I had not gone through the book of Jeremiah, which is a big book in the Bible. It has a lot to say. So he was asked, so you're you're not planning for May 22nd? Absolutely not. It's going to happen. No plan B. Dozens of his followers have been asked the same question, and they said even entertaining the possibility that May 21st would come and go without this event is an offense to God. They all hope they'll be raptured, although many worry about being left behind. After all, nobody likes to be left behind. Children cry unfair when their older siblings are allowed to go out and they are left behind. If you have children in your household, you've probably experienced this. I know we experienced it in my household. You know, when the five-year-old would complain that the 15-year-old was allowed to go out, and they weren't buying the answer that when you're 15, you'll be allowed to go out. But now you're five, and you can't. The United States, we even have an uh, institution, institutional uh, educational program called No Child Left Behind. We're getting with the bandwagon here. You can think of uh, biblical eschatology, the study of end times. Somebody, Some of you, not all of you, most of you probably... Uh, won't be able to remember, but some of you, uh, Larry Norman was one of the early uh, Christian contemporary singers, and he wrote a song called, I'd Wish We'd All Been Ready. The chorus goes, there's no time to change your mind, the sun has come, and you've been left behind. More recently, if you enjoy poor writing, bad literature, and worse theology, you could have read about the 12-volume Left Behind series written by Tim LaHaye. With all of that, we assume that being left behind is a bad thing. We assume that when Jesus talks uh, about it in Matthew 24 and in Luke 17, it's referring to something negative. Matthew 24 says, uh, verses 40 and 41, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Most Bible scholars interpret those texts to mean that those who are taken are raptured to be with the Lord, but those who are left behind remain to receive God's judgment. And what would you think if I told you that those who are left behind are the ones who are blessed? 
It's not what everybody says. It's not what they wrote in those books. How could that be? Whereas those who are taken are the ones who are being taken for judgment. Seems to be confirmed because in both of those passages, Jesus' comparison is to the people in Noah's day who were taken in judgment. Versus, and he's comparing to those, those will be taken when the Son of Man uh, returns. And the issue is not that some are taken for salvation, others are left behind to face judgment. The issue is that judgment is coming, and whoever wishes to save his life must flee, and those who don't flee the coming judgment will be taken by the wrath of God. You could use a similar analysis here with Noah. Little doubt that Matthew views those who were killed by the flood as being taken away. A couple of verses earlier in Matthew 24, he says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The New American Standard translates that as took them all away. I looked up the Hebrew, and it's not decisive because the exact translation depends on the context. However, in the story of Noah's Ark and the flood, the ones who are left behind are the ones who are saved. We see this confirmed in Genesis 7, where it says, He blotted out every living thing on the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And in this story of the flood from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, the idea of being left behind is actually being contrasted with the idea of being judged by God. The people on the earth were taken by God and thus blotted out, but Noah and his family were left behind and received God's mercy. All of which is to bring us to Genesis 8, which is our text for this morning. There's a lot of folks who are just here for the first time today. We've been going through the book of Genesis since January, and now we're up to chapter 8. There's a few things about chapter 8 you need to know first to understand it. You have to understand, first of all, that chapter 8 is trying to explain the shift from decreation to recreation. The rise of the Genesis flood was a divine act of decreation. A creation God had made an expanse that he called sky to, sell, to uh, separate the watery chaos into the waters above the sky and under the sky. And in Genesis 1, we read, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. But the flood acted to essentially affect a reversal of creation. Genesis 7. On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And this flood engulfed the earth in this uh, wild, watery chaos. And it continued uh, the rain for 40 days, as the water raged, both coming up from great fissures in the seabed and uh, coming down from heaven, and this rolling ark rode on the valleys of this watery death like a gigantic sealed coffin. The whole story is one of cosmic drama. But as gripping as this account is, its focus is not on the flood, 
and it's not on judgment. The focus is on Noah as the kind of person that God saves from judgment. He was saved by faith, the writer's Hebrews makes clear, uh, Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah believed God and righteousness was imputed to him. He's the first man in the Bible to be described as righteous back in Genesis 6. And his faith and his righteousness produced this towering obedience. Four times in Genesis 6 and 7, the account gives variations of this declaration that Noah did all that God commanded him. So we see the person that God saves is the one who believes the word of God, so much so it changes his life. Whenever we read this story, we must see above this churning drama the overarching faith of this one man. Noah is the only figure of his time to experience the grace of God. So one of the things we should see about the flood story is it's not random. It's very carefully arranged. There's a perfect... Uh, half of decreation and then recreation, Genesis 7, Genesis 8. And there's a symmetry here, which is very common in Hebrew writing, because the, the events of the second half, decreation, exactly mirror the events of the first half. And there's a mirror image all the way down to the use of the numbers. I have a, a slide, if you would put that up for me. Okay, you see that, the seven days of the flood. And you can see, chapter 7, there's seven days, seven days, 40 days, 150 days, and then in chapter 8, that process is reversed. There's fancy names for this, but it's very common in Hebrew writing. In fact, Moses, who wrote this, wouldn't have been believed if he didn't have these sort of parallel tracks in here because it would have been viewed as something uncommon. In Hebrew writing, they would often write like this to make their point. And if they didn't write like that, people wouldn't believe them. And so you see this sort of mirror image of even of the days and of what happens. And it's hard to see when you're just reading through Genesis 7 and 8 uh, very quickly, but it's there. And uh, the Hebrews would have picked it up. They would have been looking for it. So very important uh, that we see that, that Moses is trying to make a point. One, we see that his attention to detail is amazing. But he's also trying to make a point. He's using their style of writing to help prove his point. But he doesn't just use parallels between decreation, Genesis 7, and recreation, Genesis 8, but he also parallels back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 1 and 2. I have a second slide there. There we go. A little harder to read because it's just a list of Bible verses. Um, but God is taking steps to restore creation, to make it livable, to, to make it uh, inhabitable. And there are several parallels or literary echoes uh, there. You can look there. You can see Genesis 1 and 8, Spirit of God's hovering over the face of the waters, and then God made a wind to blow over the waters. Hebrew word 
for spirit and wind are the same word. Very common. Hebrew is a very vague language, and to pick the exact word in English depends on the context that's being used. Very different New Testament, which is Greek, which is much more specific language than English is. So then we see Genesis uh, 1, 7 and 8, 2, that he's separated the waters, and here we see the waters come from separated places. Then in 1, 9, we have the dry land appear, Genesis 8, 3 and 5. We have the dry land appear, and then at the end, Genesis 1, God told them to be fruitful and multiply. And now we have not just the restoration of creation, but this creation mandate where once again, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. I actually found 10 of these parallels in Genesis 8 and the first part of Genesis 9. I picked out uh, these. There's three more that come in the first three verses of Genesis 9. And all of this, and you can turn the slide off, thanks, All of this is suggesting that God is really starting over again with creation. And Noah's being cast into a role of a person sort of like Adam. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the original beginning of God's creation, and Genesis 8 and 9 shows creation with mankind in a new beginning. Despite all the parallels between Adam and Noah, it's not really proper to say that Noah is a second Adam because that distinction properly belongs only to Jesus, because Noah doesn't have to face the same sorts of choices and decisions that Adam did. Noah was never in a state uh, before the fall of no sin. Noah's always been after the fall. So we have these parallels between the original creation, recreation. We have another parallel between the decreation of the flood the recreation after the flood in Genesis 8. And the hinge here is in the first verse of Genesis 8, Genesis 8.1. And there we learn that the Lord never forgets his people. The Lord never forgets his people. That should be the first blank uh, there in your outline. The closing verses of Genesis 7 describe in very sobering words the extent of the flood and of its deadly effects All the earth is covered with water for 150 days so that all life dies. And at the end of Genesis 7, verse 23, we're told only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The population of the earth is radically reduced down to eight. And we have this mere remnant of humanity. And yet in his wrath, God remembers his mercy, preserves a remnant for his own glory. And the opening words of Genesis 8 can strike us with uh, some surprise, at least initially, because we read there, but God remembered Noah. Had God previously forgotten this righteous man, his family, all the forms of life that were with him on the ark? In the text, the last time we actually heard from the Lord was in Genesis 7.14. And then we got a description of the flood without any speaking of God explicitly. But God didn't forget Noah. The idea of forgetfulness suggests to to humans that notion of frailty, a mental lapse that we don't want to occur, but often does. Life gets busy. We get distracted with many things. We forget things, both important things and unimportant things. And to forget (coughs) 
is a flaw that belongs to human beings. God's not like that. The verb to remember is used on many significant occasions in the Bible. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told he remembered Abraham, Genesis 19, and so brought Lot out of the catastrophe. When Rachel was barren yet wanted children, God listened to her prayers and we're told God remembered Rachel, Genesis 30, and he enabled her to have a son. We see probably one of the biggest incidents of this in Exodus chapter 2. It tells us that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very next chapter, we have the call of Moses to deliver God's people. And for God to remember is for him to bring special consideration to his promises that he's given to his people when they're most in need. And his thoughts towards us are in anticipation of taking actions that meet our needs that bring deliverance. And the hinge between these two halves of the flood story is Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah. And the function is that God's remembering is more than just mere memory. It's more than a recollection. When God remembers, God acts. God's remembering always implies movement toward the person or the the object or the people. God's remembering, the essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment that he's made, his covenant, his promises. But God remembered Noah means that God took care of them throughout the great flood and he fulfilled his covenant promise that he had made to Noah back in Genesis 6 when he said, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So now Noah's in the ark. The flood has accomplished the purpose of divine judgment and now God is going to save Noah by undoing the flood. And while recreating the earth, God's also doing something else. You can't miss it. Remember, the focus is not the flood. (coughs) Excuse me. The focus is Noah. Look at verses 2 through 5. We see the Lord tests Noah's faith. The Lord tests Noah's faith. It says, The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, God had told Noah he'd make a covenant with him. He'd enter into a covenant with him, and having done so, he fulfills his covenant promise by bringing Noah and his family through the floodwaters. This is important for Noah, because when these words are being spoken, Noah may not be aware that God has remembered him. For He's been in the ark for a long time now. And there was no sign of dry land, no sign of the flood letting up. Remember that 7, 7, 40, 150? It's a lot of days. And he's got to be wondering, Lord, am I going to die on this creaky old boat? 
Is this really a floating coffin? Have you forgotten me? And his faith is put to the test as he waits for a release from the ark. And when God remembered Noah, <coughs> the earth has been flooded for five months. And think about that. A five-month lock-in with Mrs. Noah, with her, their three sons and their three wives, and a complete menagerie of the world's animals, birds, and creeping things. I don't like that part. Five months of stable muck, bilge water, daughters-in-laws and mother-in-law, seasickness. I think there had been times when Noah wished, you know, just sink this thing and get it over with. But the effect of the God-ordered wind caused enough water to recede. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, somewhere in modern-day Turkey, most likely in what uh, we know of as Armenia. And uh, there the ark sat for two more months until the tops of the mountains were seen. So they sit in the grounded ark. They're no longer moving. They're no longer floating for 60-plus days as they wait for the land to dry out. Now some seven months in all. And I think that's enough to test the faith of any man. But God's not done, because not only does he test Noah's faith, the Lord tests Noah's patience. Look at verse 6. The Lord tests Noah's patience. At the end of 40 days, this is the second set of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Now the story is focusing on the patience of Noah as he waits for God's deliverance in the midst of mounting monotony. I'm sure Noah was ready to get out of the ark. Can't imagine that he wasn't ready to get out of the ark. But remember... He's landed in a mountain range. He can't see down to the plains. He can't tell how far the waters have receded. And so essentially he co-ops some of the animals, some of the birds as spies, and he sends out the birds so they can check things out. Now remember, God had told Noah when the flood was coming, but he didn't tell Noah when the flood was ending. So after 40 more days, uh, Noah sends out a raven that doesn't return. I think he released the raven first because it's an unclean bird. It's expendable, essentially. It's not good for either food or sacrifice. Then he sends out a dove on three journeys, seven days between each one. The dove returns once, returns again with an olive leaf, and then doesn't return. A dove's an altogether different bird. It's white and clean, often used for sacrifices because it's from the clean animals, 
a dove would be sacrificed in his post-flood burnt offerings. And we see in the middle of this, the dove returns with an olive leaf. The olive leaf is an indication of a new world, a new creation. And for as long as uh, any of us have been alive, the olive branch and the dove has been a sign of peace, a, a ceasing of war. And there may be a sense in which the war that God has waged against this created order is now over. But I think more than that, the olive leaf is a sign that there's new life out there. There's a new world, and it's not long before Noah's going to be called to go out into that world and re-inhabit it. So what lesson do we learn from this scene? We learn that God calls on all of us to wait in patience and faith and in hope. You notice the pattern here, Genesis 6 through 9, God commands, Noah obeys. Noah doesn't make a move until God commands. Noah's anxious. He wants to know if the land is coming back out there. He wants to know if the water is receding. He's anxious to leave the ark. But he waits for God's command and faith and patience. And that's a sign for us in this passage as well. We're called here in the midst of whatever trials the Lord gives us to wait in patience and in faith and in hope. Then he moves on to the third scene, starting in verse 15. And we see the Lord repeats the creation mandate. The Lord repeats the creation mandate. God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. That's very interesting. They went in two by two. They came out by families. Doesn't answer, doesn't say anything, just says. So now God's given the command for Noah and his family and the animals to disembark. Once again, Noah obeys. And in character for Noah, he's faithful to God's command. And I want you to notice throughout here this language of creation. You see the language of the original creation being reintroduced. It's as if God has cleansed the world by these waters of judgment and a new creation is there. Noah as another Adam, a new Adam entering the world which God has cleansed by judgment. And then again, we see that creation uh, ordinance is accentuated that they might be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, that mandate from God to inhabit the earth is given in this renewed world. So again, Noah is like another Adam. He has the job of seeing the creation ordinances as originally given by God, now reinstituted in a new world, a world that's emerged from the old world. So Here again, we see the principle that in God's work of redemption, he's about restoring the original blessings of the creation order in Noah's life and in our lives. It's not that God has abandoned his original design for us in creation. It says, well, I'll give you something second best. I'll give you some minor blessing, you know, something less than real. The original creation blessings are given, are intended to be restored in God's redeeming work. He intends to restore the original blessings in all of his redeemed people. And that's seen in the mandate that's given to Noah. 
Noah is to obey these original ordinances. God intends to see these blessings worked out in the life of his people. And so here, as they're repeated, the original principles of creation are repeated in Genesis 8, we see a hint at this truth that God's work of redemption is something in which he restores and in some ways betters the condition of his original creation. Much of redemption, it's a word we like, it's a word we want, we want to be identified with. You have to understand it's a process of restoration that God is bringing about, not just for Noah, but for all of us. Now, the sad part is it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. You don't get it all up front. You got to sort of, you know, live through it your whole life. But it's part of God's promise. And then at the very end, there's two faithful responses. One comes from man, one comes from God. They could be summarized as sacrifice and salvation. Verses 20 through 22, sacrifice and salvation. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down, ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So finally, here in verses 20 to 22, we see Noah gratefully responding to the Lord's work in worship. Now, I don't know about you, but I, don't, I doubt that would have been my first response. I would have been like, get me off this boat. You know, probably would have kissed the ground when I got off. I, I'm not a boat person. I, I'm not a big fan. of. Uh, I crossed the Atlantic once on a boat. It's the sickest I've ever been in my whole life. I was hoping they'd throw me off the boat. But Noah recognizes that God has saved him. And his first response is worship. In the very first scene of this chapter, we saw that God never forgets his people. God never fails to keep his promises. We saw that God tests his people, tests their faith, tests their patience. And finally, he reinstitutes his creation ordinances and the Lord's saving work always is to draw out from us, always is to evoke from us a response of worship. There's no coincidence that the very first thing that Noah did when he comes out of that ark is to worship God. His first thought is to lift up a sacrifice of praise and worship to the Lord. couple of quick notes. This is the first time the word altar is used in the Bible. It's never used before this. We're told about sacrifices in Genesis 4 in the story of Cain and Abel, but no altar is mentioned there. This is the first altar mentioned in the Bible. Another thing is that the word for sacrifice here is not the same word used in Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel's sacrifices. This word actually is used for the sacrifices of burnt offerings in the time of Moses. Remember, Moses is writing this book for his people in his time to reintroduce them to God. He's using the same language of Exodus back here in Genesis. So Noah worships, he gives thanks to the Lord, 
Uh, if we can read into those burnt offerings what they represent in the time of Moses, we can see he's not only given thanks for being spared uh, from the judgment of God, but lifting up a prayer that God would not judge the world again, confessing that the judgment was just penalty against sin for which a sacrifice needed to be made. And I don't think that's saying too much because of the context of the passage. And the Lord's favor towards Noah's worship toward his sacrifice, is immediately expressed in striking language. It says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. That's a good thing. But there's one more interesting thing here in verse 21. It says, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. When God said that, he's repeating the same language you saw before the flood. If you remember that, back in the beginning of Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's going on? Well, for one thing, you're being told that man suddenly didn't become an angel after the flood. The problem of sin is not external to man, it's internal. Ham, Shem, and Japheth were in that boat. The line of wickedness couldn't be wiped out unless all of man is wiped out. Unless man was totally changed by the work of God. So wickedness continues. Total depravity continues. This is a proof text for the doctrine of original sin. If anyone ever tells you that men are inherently good, after you take them to the newspaper, you can take them to Genesis 6 and 8. It makes it very clear that before and after the flood, we battle sin and evil and wickedness and depravity. What is God saying here? Is he saying he's not going to judge the world by water again because men are totally depraved? That's what the language sounds like. I will never again curse the ground for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This has caused commentators fits. Is God saying, I'm not going to curse the ground again for the very reason I cursed it in the first place? I don't think so. What does it mean then? I think it means in light of man's inherent depravity, that's a permanent reality in a fallen world. God, in his grace, chooses not to judge the world again by water because of the sacrifice lifted up and acceptable to him. When the aroma of that sacrifice reached glory, God made the pronouncement that he will not judge. You see, in Noah's sacrifice, we get a foretaste of several more parts of the Bible. Daniel's prayers, the saints' prayers, a foretaste of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we have a foretaste of that sacrifice that will quit sin and quit judgment and bring salvation for all God's people. You remember in Daniel 9, and we, we did that about a year and a half ago, I'm sure you all remember it. It was in the midst of Daniel's prayer for the restoration of Israel that God answered his prayer with the promise of a Messiah. And it was in answer in Revelation 8. You may remember that. We did that last year. To the prayers of the saints that had come to heaven, that God's judgment fell on the wicked. And in answer to the prayers and worship of Noah, God promises sparing the world of judgment until the end of time. Why? Because Noah's sacrifice 
is a foretaste, a sign of a greater sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a propitiation, which means a turning aside of God's wrath and atoning for sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah's sacrifice points forward to another, a real sacrifice for sin, a final sacrifice for sin. As Hebrews says, once and for all, the sacrifice the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 3 when he says, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a turning aside of God's wrath, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The question is, what sacrifice are you going to trust in? You're going to trust in the sacrifice of Noah? It still says the thoughts of his heart are still evil continually. Are you going to trust in your own sacrifice, that you're, sacrif you're going to sacrifice your life enough to God that you'll be acceptable to God? It comes clear that to avoid judgment, there has to be a sacrifice. And the Bible makes it clear the only one that's acceptable to God for eternity is Jesus' sacrifice. You don't get to trust in anything else. And I know that's a really hard message. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is really the only option that God's giving us. It doesn't matter what church, what denomination, what background you come from. Now, maybe May 21st will be the end of the world as we know it. All I know right now is that in a world of shakable kingdoms, we can have an unshakable confidence enabling us to live as people of hope in the midst of it all come what may. 6 p.m. on May 21st, that's this coming Saturday. And at that time, I'll be sitting down to eat with the elders and deacons of this church on our way back from the officer retreat. I'm hoping on that day to be able to drive safely home to be with my family. And if the world ends, I hope that I'll be found loving God and loving the people in my life. And my deepest hope for you is exactly the same thing, that you'll be found loving God and loving the people in your life. And we'll see how it goes when we meet next week. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Noah. Thank you for the story of the flood and the ark. But thank you most of all for your promises, and that you show us that you always keep your promises in the darkest days, in the hardest times, and the things that are most difficult for us. When we're in the midst of grief, you bring great hope. Lord, thank you that you're faithful to your word even when we've forgotten it. Lord, when it comes to believing in you, waiting on you, we fall apart, we fall down. We're impatient people who don't know how, what, where, when, and often who to believe. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us faith. And I ask for that in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.